Good morning, church. We're going to study God's word together. So if you'd open your Bible to the Old Testament book of Jeremiah, chapter 29, I'm going to start reading in verse 1. This is the text of the letter that the prophet Jeremiah sent from Jerusalem to the remaining exiled elders, the priests, the prophets, and all the people Nebuchadnezzar had deported from Jerusalem to Babylon. This was after King Jeconiah, the queen mother, the court officials, the officials of Judah and Jerusalem, the craftsmen and the metalsmiths had left Jerusalem. He sent the letter with Elasa, son of Shaphan, and Gemariah, son of Hilkiah, whom Zedekiah, king of Judah, sent to Babylon, to King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon. The letter stated, this is what the Lord of armies, the God of Israel, says to all the exiles I deported from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Find wives for yourselves and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters to men in marriage so that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there. Do not decrease. Pursue the well-being of the city I have deported you to. Pray to the Lord on its behalf. For when it thrives, you will thrive. So there's more than one way to win people to the faith. The late Christian author, poet, Semitic languages scholar, Eugene Peterson, um, he wrote in one of his memoirs, his memoir called The Pastor, about pastoral ministry, and he tells a story about his upbringing and how a couple of verses that were drilled into his mind were, turn the other cheek and bless those who persecute you. And he said, but he also wanted to win people to Christ. And he tells the story of how he won his first convert to Christ, even in the midst of being drilled, this thing, this this language of bless those who persecute you. And he said, it was almost like the bully Garrison Johns at my school. It was like he knew I was trying to memorize and live out this verse because he tested it at every point. He said, he chased me down the block on the way home from school and he'd beat the tar out of me day after day after day. And he said, I would get home humiliated and bruised and uh, would tell my mom, and my mom would encourage me right there with her there to pray for Garrison Johns because we pray for those who persecute us. And he said this was just a verse that meant so much, and it was drilled into his head, and he said that that was going on day after day, the same pattern over and over until one particular day. He said everything was basically the same. I'm headed home from school. I've got some friends around me this time, and here comes Garrison Johns. And he says, he comes up, catches up to me and starts jabbing me. And he says, in that particular time, something snapped. And here's what he writes. For a moment, the Bible verses disappeared from my consciousness. And I grabbed Garrison. To my surprise and his, I was stronger than he was. I wrestled him to the ground, sat on his chest, pinned his arms to the ground with my knees. It was too good to be true. I hit him in the face with my fist. By this time, all the other children were egging me on. A torrent of biblical invective poured from them. I said to Garrison, say uncle. He wouldn't say it. I hit him again, more cheering. Now my audience was bringing the best out of me. And then my Christian training reasserted itself. I said, say, I believe in Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. (laughs) And he said it. Garrison Johns was my first Christian convert. So so Jeremiah 29 says there's another way to win the world. 
And it's, it's basically God telling his embattled, bullied by Babylon people, use the other thing. Use the influence route, right? You fast forward from Jeremiah 29, you come to the time of Jesus, and here's Jesus. He's lived his ministry, he's got his disciples around him, but now he's headed to the cross. And so the whole cause is fledgling there. You know, everything seems really tenuous right now. Uh, it's all hanging by a thread because here come these soldiers to arrest Jesus, and what does Peter do? Out comes a sword, he cuts off Malchus's ear. The cause can't go down like this, right? He slices Malchus's ear off, and what does Jesus do? He doesn't buy him a snow cone. He doesn't say, hey, you know, at least somebody stood up for me. Somebody was courageous. No, he puts the ear back on and he submits to the arrest, right? There's a different way to win the world. Jeremiah 29 is God saying, I'm going to prepare a table for you in the presence of your enemies. And the table is going to bend under the weight of blessing and a feast. And you're going to have so much that I'm going to want you to bring that blessing to Babylon. I'm going to bless you so that you will be a blessing, even here in God-forsaken country, in Babylon itself. Look, this passage isn't everything the Bible says about mission. We've studied a number of other passages, but this is really needed. And here it is, Jeremiah chapter 29. What do we learn? If we want to live faithfully on mission, we need to hear God calling us in two ways. The first is this. There's a call to stay. There's a call to stay. So, some backstory, I think, that might help us grasp what's going on in this particular text. So 597 B.C., what happens? Babylon comes to Jerusalem, lays siege, conquers, and carries off the whole first wave of exiles. You see the categories of people that they carried away when you look at verse 1 and verse 2. So out go all these people, rich people, metal workers, all the people who can help me build stuff back in Babylon right, uh, kingdom builders kind of people, and then he leaves the poor to scr scratch out a living back in, in Jerusalem, and, and Jeremiah's back there with the poor in Jerusalem, which is why he sends this letter all the way to Babylon. He's still back there in Jerusalem. The exiles of the first wave are there in Babylon, and so you put it all together. What's going on here? It's, it's, it's a letter sent to them in Babylon from their true home in Jerusalem to their temporary residence in Babylon. And one of the things that I think you learn when you read through the Old Testament is the prosperity gospel isn't new. It's not a new thing. It's, it's a very old thing. So the, the exiles, they get this letter from a prophet and they're probably, there's probably some level of excitement because this thing is postmarked from God's mouthpiece, Jeremiah. And they had, if you read the broader context, we won't take it all, but if you read the broader context, you find out that there was a lot of buzz among prophets in Jerusalem and around Jerusalem and even among the exiled people. There were prophets and the buzz, the word on the street was, God's giving us a new revelation. And guess what the new revelation is? We're getting out of here and he's burning the place to the ground and we'll see it go up in flames in our rearview mirrors as we head back home to Jerusalem out of this God-forsaken land. And they, they couldn't wish for it to happen a moment too soon, right? So there was just these, this bustle of prophetic activity going on. You see, if you look back in your Bible, if you've got your Bible open, chapter 28, verse 2, look at it. Here's a prophet named Hananiah. And he says, this is what the Lord of armies, the God of Israel says, I have broken the yoke of the king of Babylon. You can almost imagine the people shouting amen. 
Within two years, I'm going to restore, he basically goes on to say, everything. I'm going to put the articles that were stolen from the temple back in the temple. I'm going to put you who were stolen from Jerusalem back in Jerusalem. Everything's going back to the way it was. Just hold on for two years. Hunker down and hold on for two years, and then we're back in power. And then you fast forward, though, to chapter 28, verse 15, and there's this confrontation between the prophets. Somebody's lying. Somebody's blowing smoke. And here's what Jeremiah says. Listen, Hananiah, the Lord did not send you, but you have led these people to trust in a lie. Prosperity gospel is not new. It's very old. You know, even Jeremiah chapter 29, the passage immediately following the one that we're studying this morning is the one that you might have on the coffee mug at home. Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 11. I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you, not to harm you. Plans of peace and not of evil to give you a future and a hope, right? You could read that text and if you abstract it from its original context, you think, man, this sounds awesome. Sounds like we're whistling our way to freedom. Sounds like wealth. Sounds like political ascendancy. Sounds like all of this, but you keep reading Jeremiah 29, and God is not saying you're getting out of Babylon. He says, stay there. You're going to be here for about 70 years. Hananiah made that stuff up. It's not two years. You're going to raise your grandkids in this city. You're going to be here a while, says the Lord. What are we learning? The Lord gives his people purpose. In exile. The Lord gives purpose to his exiled people. This wasn't a category that was active in many of their minds. I, I had a, a Bible professor in my college, and he would take a class to Jerusalem every year. He took a, a trip to the Holy Land every year. He had us sing every class. We sat in his classroom. He opened every class where we all sang the Shema in Hebrew from Deuteronomy chapter 6. And he, would just, he talked about this all the time. He would have us pray in the spirit of Psalm 122, verse 6. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. They shall prosper, them that love thee. He would quote that text. Every time we opened class, we'd sing the Shema and we'd pray for the peace or the shalom of Jerusalem. Jews understood that. The Jews in exile understood. Pray for the shalom of Jerusalem. Pray for the peace and well-being of Jerusalem. What they didn't have a category for is what God would say in Jeremiah 29, where he would lift the exact same language from Psalm 122, and he would say, pursue the shalom of Babylon and pray to the Lord on Babylon's behalf because when Babylon prospers, you prosper. When you prosper, Babylon's gonna prosper. I've left you there on purpose that I might bless you and that you might be a blessing. And if you heard those words and you were the exiled community and you heard God say through the prophet Jeremiah, pray for the peace. What did you say? Of who? You think we forgot what they did to us? It's only been four years. We have not, our kids are still in therapy from what happened in 597 BC when Babylon rolled up on Jerusalem. You think we forgot? There's no way we're praying for the well-being of those people. They laid siege to our city. They killed people that day. We'll never forget that day. We hate everything Babylon stands for. This is not a people we're praying for. You ask the Israelite on the, in the ghettos of Babylon, all hunkered down together by the river Kibar. You read that in Ezekiel. They hung up their harps by the willows and they said, there are no songs for Zion out here in Babylon. God is not on location this way. And you ask one of them the question, how'd you get here? 
and they say one word, his name is Nebuchadnezzar, and he's the worst person on planet Earth. Nebuchadnezzar, verse one, Nebuchadnezzar deported us. That's the story. Humanly speaking, of course, that's true, but it wasn't the whole story because God speaks through Jeremiah, and he says, Nebuchadnezzar did not hijack my purposes. He couldn't tie his shoes if I didn't let him. I put you here. Look at the language. So he says, one, Nebuchadnezzar deported you. Yes, verse one. But look at verse four. This is what the Lord of armies, the God of Israel, says to all the exiles. I deported from Jerusalem to Babylon. Verse seven, pursue the well-being of the city. I have deported you to. That's the context. He's saying, I put you there for a reason. You were sent. You're missionaries. Welcome to the mission field in your fair city of Babylon. Can I stop here for a second and just talk to the church? Our hope is not found in the absence of hardship. Our hope is found in the presence of God. Jeremiah 29 is teaching the church to sing that song and to sing it out here in the, in the haunting wasteland that is Babylon. Jeremiah 29 is teaching the church to sing, no power of hell, no scheme of man, that man, Nebuchadnezzar included, can ever pluck me from his hand. He deported us, but God deported us. There's a king above the king. There's a Lord above the Lord's. Look, God can find you in Babylon. Christian friend, God can find you in the, in the haunted wasteland. God can find you in the stubbornness of depression. He can find you in unspeakable grief. There is no circumstance in your life that can bar the door to the grace of God. Jeremiah is shouting that truth. And if Christians hold on to it this morning, guess what happens? Something called hope starts brimming in your soul. You need it. That's why God put this chapter in the Bible so you'd have it. Babylon struck fear in people's hearts. Just to say that word melted people on the inside. You know, in, in the, the movie Lion King years ago, one of the um, hyenas says Mufasa, and the other one just <laughs> shivers. And she says, just when you say the name, say it again, Mufasa. Ooh, right, it's just something on the inside just shudders. Right, if you said Babylon, the insides of people just shuddered. Not just Israelites, anybody in the world in the 7th century, anybody in the world in the 6th century shuddered when you said Babylon. Babylon was no joke. It made people tremble. Look, in Scripture, Babylon, it symbolizes human defiance to God's rule. One Bible scholar said years ago, in a way, the Bible really is a tale of two cities. Two cities being Babylon and Jerusalem, the, the city of man and the city of God. Jerusalem, the city of God, built for the worship of God. Babylon, the city of man, built for the glory of self. They are at polar ends, right? Jerusalem represents a kingdom of righteousness and peace and justice and humility and joy. And Babylon represents all of the opposites of those things. Babylon represents a kingdom of ambition and immorality and idolatry and pride and injustice. The reason that that the Bible speaks to Christians no matter what place in the world we live and it speaks to us as resident aliens is because the world we inhabit is Babylon. Babylon goes down in the book of Revelation not because of what's particularly might be happening in the future in that nation state. Babylon is a hyperlink for everything that stands in defiance of the creator God. Babylon is a 
broken, fallen, rebellious world waving its fist, fist at a sovereign God. The apostles remind us your citizenship is in heaven, but your home address is very much on earth. Your home address is in Babylon. Rightly conceived, that's where we live. I know there are a lot of churches in the United States. Don't let that give you the wrong impression. There are a lot of churches in, in our city of Birmingham. But remember, there is no nation on earth, there is no city on earth that escapes the fingerprints of the prince of the power of the air. Ephesians 2, the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Even right here in our fair city with chapels and churches on every corner, what, what is it? We, what's going on? What's the expression of the fall in the city of Birmingham? We have endlessly creative ways of domesticating God in Birmingham, Alabama. Endlessly creative ways of pushing God to the periphery, of making him serviceable to our ends, our dreams. God says, I put you in Babylon for a reason because I have a purpose for you. He, says, he goes on to say, I want you to build houses and live in them. I want you to plant gardens and eat the fruit, right? So he's saying, don't just stay there. Um, buy a house, get you some azaleas, put it out front. They grow great this time of year. Put some azaleas out in front and your house in Babylon, that, that Hebrew girl that you see singing by the river, Kibar, if she will have you, marry her. And don't try to delay the marriage so you can get married in the chapel back in Jerusalem. You're going to marry right here. You're going to raise your kids and your grandkids right here. You're going to stay, unpack your bags. You're staying a while because I have a purpose for you. I have a plan for you right here. God's using, it's interesting. He's using the language of new beginnings. There's a cognitive dissonance in this passage that would not have been lost on the Hebrew people, right? This is the language that God used when he started everything in Garden of Paradise, in Eden. And what did he say? He said, I got two jobs for you, Adam and Eve, farming and family. So I want you to be fruitful and multiply. And I want you to take care, cultivate the earth. So you've got vocation and you've got family, farming and family. It's the building blocks of ancient culture. Get started, right? And then flood comes later on. Noah docks the ark on dry ground, comes up out of dry ground. What does God say? Farming, family. We start again. Be fruitful and multiply, cultivate the earth. And here we are, centuries down the road. In all, of all places, we're in Babylon. And God says, we've got a new start. Farming and family. Be fruitful and multiply. And bring blessing to the city of Babylon. Plant gardens, eat fruit build houses, live in them, have kids, have grandkids. It's like God is giving a new start in the oddest of places, of all places, Babylon, right? Here's a question for us to think about. Have we learned how to sit in exile and be fruitful? Have we learned how to sit in exile and be fruitful? The church of centuries and years before us, they've learned this. The great Christian author John Bunyan, he talked a lot about God's unique purpose in suffering, unique purpose in hardship. He even used an analogy over and over of how winter kills weeds. And he spiritualized that analogy. Here's what he said. He said, we are apt to overshoot in days that are calm. What does he mean by overshoot? He goes on, to think ourselves far stronger than we find ourselves to be when the trying day is upon us. We should be overgrown with flesh 
if we had not our seasonable winter. We should be overgrown with flesh if we did not have a seasonable winter. And he had a seasonable winter. It was called 12 years in Bedford Jail for preaching the gospel. And he said, it was like ripping the flesh off my bones that I couldn't see my daughter, his blind daughter. And he comes out of that once he's released and he looks back and he says, God was working the whole time. He wrote Pilgrim's Progress from the prison. Years later, Christian leaders would say, the book is so powerful. And he said, it stank of the prison. It smelled like suffering. He would use language that would actually be picked up on more clearly a couple hundred years later on. Alexander Solzhenitsyn would come out from under Stalin, from under a Russian gulag, and he would be released from prison. And he would turn around after he's released and say, I bless you, prison, for having been my life. Have we learned how to sit in exile and be fruitful? It's a call to stay. Second, it's a call to bless. Pursue the shalom. Pursue the holistic well-being of the city. Pray on behalf of Babylon. Tim Keller, he's unpacking this word. What does shalom mean? He, he helps this way. Shalom means complete reconciliation. A state of the fullest flourishing in every dimension, physical, emotional, social, and spiritual, because all relationships are right, perfect, and filled with joy. Look, God's work of blessing, of shalom in his people is a holistic work. The story, we've been talking about this for the last five weeks, the story that we're living in. Our collective testimony is a story in which God is making us clean. God is renewing us. God is making us holy and he's making us whole and he's giving us family. It's a holistic life of blessing. He's speaking his benediction over his people, his kingdom people. That's what made the church a magnet in the first century. It was like the Roman Empire was looking through plate glass windows and they're saying, what's going on? The way they love one another, the diversity of their gatherings, the love feasts. Like, how do we get in on that? Because we're not tasting any of that out here. Look at the way they provide for their poor. What's going on in there? It was a magnet. What happens in our lives and what happens in our fellowship as a church, it matters for the mission. It's not inconsequential for the mission of the gospel. Let's take it it a step back and just bring it all in together. What is our collective testimony? Here in our notes, if you're taking notes, God works for us in Christ, in us by the Spirit, and through us to our city. For us, in us, And through us, in the miracle that Christians call salvation, let's just take these one by one, God does for us in Christ what we could never do for ourselves. What does he do? God comes to Babylon. Emmanuel means God in Babylon. It means God with us. God breathing in the air of a world in rebellion to him. And he came to seek and save the lost, right? He comes, he lives a perfect life of holiness. We remember this story, right? He, he bears our punishment, the punishment of our sins on the cross. He buries our judgment in the ground and leaves it there three days later when he rises from the dead and says, everybody who repents and believes, you come with me, you come to life. Everybody who comes with me is coming to life. Starting now, and it never ends. 
right? That's what God has done for us in Christ. It's not some contract deal. Jesus doesn't come and say, all right, I did my part. I did 50. You do 50. That's how this arrangement works. No, it is stem to stern salvation. It is author and finisher. It is the God who regenerates and the God who preserves us and presents us faultless at the end. Look, we repent and we believe, but our repentance and our faith are not meritorious. Our repentance and our faith earn nothing. All it is is the sinner extending his dirty hand and taking the free gift of salvation. That's all that is. He does it all and he gets all the glory. He does something for us. The amazing thing is it doesn't end there. It's not like that's a period on the sentence. He says, I'm just getting started. I'm moving in, right? He he comes in the Holy Spirit, indwells the life of the believer, starts moving furniture around, starts working from the inside out and bringing change into our lives, working powerfully, making all things new. It's the work of the Holy Spirit. And it's not just an individual thing. The Holy Spirit's working and being poured out on the church, on the corporate people of God. There's a new way to be human. There's a new society on earth called the kingdom of God. The late scholar Edmund Clowney, he he wrote a book, large volume, on the doctrine of the church, not creatively called the church, just several hundred pages of studying that. In one of the chapters, he just develops this idea of how the Bible speaks of the church as what he calls a colony of heaven. In other words, it's a preview of coming attractions. If you want to get a window, an imperfect to be sure, but if you want to get a preview of what's to come and the age to come, if you want to see a little glimpse of the new Jerusalem, look at the church, look at local assemblies meeting in fellowship all around the world because when you look at the church, you see something of the righteousness of the future kingdom. You see something of the compassion and justice and joy of the kingdom of heaven. It's observable in your area. Find a local church where Christ is king and it's a colony of heaven. A powerful image. A story that God is writing. God intends for Christians to flourish in deep spiritual community. Right, so what is Jeremiah 29, how does that land in the last days? Right, how does that land in the time period after Jesus comes and after he sends his Holy Spirit? You follow the arrows that are flying across the Old Testament and you locate their final trajectory in Christ and in the power of the Holy Spirit. And what do you see here? You see the buildings of homes in Jeremiah 29 isn't a timeless command for Christians to be homeowners. The command to find a wife and find, find someone for your sons and daughters is not a timeless command for Christians to be married. Paul was never married. He was joyfully, fully alive as a single man. Jesus Christ was joyfully, fully alive as a single man, which is to say that though these words have rich application for discipleship within Christian homes, the fruit of which we've already seen this morning in baptism, it's a beautiful thing. But there's something deeper and bigger than, hey, build a house, plant a garden, find a wife. That's not where the arrow finally lands. The arrow flies into the New Testament where Christ's blood creates a family. Remember Jesus is, he's having a meal with his disciples and his disciples say, there's a knock at the door. I think it's your mom and them, right? It's your mom, your brothers, your sisters. They, they want to talk to you. And what does Jesus say? He uses shocking language. He says, my mom and my brothers and my sisters are in the room. He's creating a new family. He's purchasing a family by 
his blood. He's building a house. The, the New Testament uses the language of the local church as the household of faith. How do you build a house? How do you plant a garden in the house? You increase the strength of the church, the local church. That's what's going on. Paul uses that language. The story God is writing with us as his people has spiritual fathers and spiritual mothers. There's planting type work going on in the church where the young saplings of faith are becoming, Isaiah 61 says, oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he might be glorified. There's planting work, there's house building work. The church is a place of equipping and growth, of training and sending. Equipping and growth and training and sending. I stuck my head in this, this past Wednesday night to see our students. And, uh, and here's what I saw. I walked in the room and I saw young Young man, Levi Watkins up there with a guitar strapped on. My daughter is right next to him, Ellie, and there's a band up there, and they're ready to lead their brothers and sisters, their peers in the worship of Jesus. And Levi says, hey, let's look at this verse on the screen. Let's read this from God's word together. And then Allison Matthews comes up and she says, hey, let's open our Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 16. And I want you to see the relationship between the kingship of David in 1 Samuel 16 and the kingship of Jesus in Philippians chapter 2. And I reflected on that the very next morning and just thought, look at us doing our thing. Young saplings growing strong in Christ, imbibing the scriptures. God's blessing raining down on his church in the midst of our fellowship. Look, what happens when we gather together matters for the mission. Our singing matters for the mission. Our encouragement of one another matters. God blesses us so that we might be a blessing to all nations. But it's not like we're supposed to be a blessing and bypass and skip over our own communities in order to be a blessing to the, to the nations, right? He, he's even saying to these people right there, saying, don't travel anywhere. Be a blessing right there in Babylon, right? So that we will be a blessing to our neighbors, our coworkers, our family, our school friends. There are people all around us who are close to church and far from God. Yes, there's a church right near them, right? We talk about all the time that we are considered reached because people all around us have access to the gospel. Why do they have access to the gospel? Because you and I are here, right? We, we know this. But the question is, is that just a hypothetical concept or are they actually going to hear the gospel from us? Are they actually, who at the end of this year in your circle of people that you know is going to know the hope that you have in Jesus Christ? Technically, yes, hypothetically they're reached, but are they going to hear anything about the hope that we have in Christ? Are we going to make a difference right here, wherever you are? How will our lives and our relationships show the world the strange and beautiful thing that is the kingdom of God? How, how will we live on mission in the midst of an increasingly post-Christian culture? And that is where we are trending. Various places in our nation are trending, rapidly trending post-Christian. Increased biblical illiteracy. 
Many say that the same story that our brothers and sisters in Europe have seen is playing out just a generation later here in the United States of America. So watch, we, we could watch with, with great interest and intrigue to see what's happening in Europe. There was a, a study that was released recently called On the State of Faith, Christianity, and the Church in Scotland. And it tracks the 60-year-long steady decline of Christianity in Scotland. Lots of people are leaving the church are not associating anymore with Christianity. And of those who still do associate with Christianity, seven out of ten of them don't believe the Bible, don't believe, don't have personal faith in Jesus Christ. So it is swinging radically away from Christian moorings. The interesting thing is the study revealed something surprising to everybody who was doing the research. It reads this way. Against a receding tide of Christian faith and practice in Scotland, advance a fervent minority whose lives have been transformed by faith. Scots under the age of 45 are twice as likely as those 45 and older to say faith, quote, has transformed my life. As it is comparatively rare for young Scots to have been raised in church, it may be that a greater proportion of young adults are Christian by choice rather than by cultural default. Here's what's interesting. If you keep reading that whole survey and all the research that came out, is the things that those thriving small communities of believers were doing, it was like they were sharing the same playbook. They had certain internal things that were making them strong and they had certain external pursuits that were making them reach out beyond them. So four things that they found in common, these churches. Teaching the Bible thoroughly. Nine out of ten of them were teaching expository, text by text, through the Bible. Second, fostering close community. Third, developing new leaders. Fourth, praying like there's no tomorrow, praying that we would be effective in our post-Christian society. Those were internal pursuits and commitments. And then they had a number of external goals, serving the poor and sharing their faith, partnering with other churches and causes, being innovative for the sake of the gospel, and focusing on receptive teens and young adults. Wasn't a perfect, certainly not an infallible list, but what intrigues me about that is they're seeing some of the same things that we've been talking about over the past several years, right? Roots and reach. Commitments that make us rooted in Christ and commitments that help us reach out with the love of Christ. So Brook Hills, three things for us to take away. Number one, let's go deep in God and deep in fellowship. Deep in God and deep in fellowship. Just ask yourself the question, can that be said of my life as a member of the church of Brook Hills? deep in God and going deep in fellowship. In other words, do people get around you and they see the influence of God's word in your life? Do people get around you and they grasp the Bible better? Let's go deep in God and deep in fellowship. Second, let's spread the shade of gospel blessing over our communities. Let's not hoard the blessing, let's bring the blessing. Let's serve the poor, let's care for orphans. Let's give refuge to the oppressed. Let's make sure single moms get tons and tons of help. Let's revitalize dying churches. Let's encourage stateside missionaries. Let's pour into married couples because it's hard. Let's pour into singles because it's hard. Let's disciple kids and the next generation coming behind us. Let's meet the new neighbors and bring them cookies, right? Let's practice hospitality. All these things, it's just the ordinary blessings. God has blessed us so that we might be a blessing right here. Where is God sending you this week to bring the blessing? 
Third, let's pray for God to show our city what it would look like under the reign of Jesus. What would Birmingham look like if Birmingham bowed the knee to the gracious rule of King Jesus? That question ought to be answered when they see the church. They should see something of a glimpse of heaven. They should be, they see a, a glimpse of heaven's joy, a glimpse of heaven's unity, a glimpse of heaven's justice and family, a glimpse of heaven's worship ought to be on display. The story that God is writing with us as his people is a story in which he is making us clean. He is bringing us near. He is giving us family. He will never leave us, and he is sending us to be a blessing.